We've all heard about Job and how all these awful things happen to him. But was Job a real person? And how do his tragedies have anything to do with us today? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pren, and welcome to Bible 805. Today we're going to talk about this fascinating book in the Bible, the book of Job, and you'll see how it does have a lot to say to us today. First of all, let's get into some of the basics about the book of Job. Job is possibly the oldest book of the Bible, and in our reading, we're reading it after the first of Genesis. Most Bibles have it just before Psalms, and some reading plans put it at the very end with the poetic books of the Bible. I think this is a big mistake for two reasons. First of all, it doesn't fit with where the book obviously takes place when you look at the history of it, but also, too, when you put it at the end, and what some scholars, quote-unquote, have decided is that it couldn't possibly be true, it couldn't possibly be about a real person, it's just this poetic book that was was created near the end of the Babylonian exile or shortly thereafter, and it's basically just an encouraging story. That really destroys all of the power of the book, and I think if you just look at it objectively, and we're going to do that in a few minutes, you'll see that that's really an incorrect view. Now, on how are we able to date it? First of all, we look at the context, we look at what the people practiced in it, and if we look at that, we look at how there is no Mosaic law referred to, how Job did personal sacrifices for his family, the way the whole system was set up, the trading, the people that are mentioned in it. It's very obvious that this took place during the time of the patriarchs. Now, where did it take place? The book identifies that it takes place in the land of Uz. Now, this might be a little bit of a difficult thing for people to find because that's not exactly on maps and it's a little hard to find find on ancient maps. But what the uh, what biblical archaeologists have done, and this is really quite quite good, is they talk about how the raiders that came in and destroyed Job's family and took his crops and, and um, all of his cattle and sheep and all of that sort of thing, they look at where they came from. And they came from different directions, obviously outside of the land. And so they're able to pinpoint pretty much where it is. And that, along with with different names and things like that, they very confidently put us in what the Bible refers to as Midian. Now, that should sort of ring a bell for you, because the land of Midian is where Moses fled to after he had killed a man in Egypt, and Pharaoh was looking for him, and so he fled to Midian. Now, this is very significant, because traditional Jewish sources tell us that Moses got the material for the book of Job when he was living in Midian, and that he is the one who wrote it down. Now, I think it's very important, too, to see how the Bible looks at Job. Does the Bible refer to him as just a story, or does it refer to him as an actual person? Because one of the things that I will talk about again and again is how the Bible is the very best commentary on itself. So let's look up and see if anywhere else in the Bible, if Job is mentioned, and how he's talked about. There are actually two places. The first one is in, well, actually three places but one, uh, uh, two of them are in the same chapter. In Ezekiel 4.14, it says, Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, 
were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. Now he's referring there to the siege of Jerusalem. And then the same, a similar, very similar statement is repeated in 1420. But here he is talking about them as very real people. Now keep in mind, Daniel was actually alive when Ezekiel was preaching. Ezekiel was preaching to the to the captives that were by the river Kibar, and Daniel was actually a very wealthy ruler in the same area. So he's he's putting him a current person with a historical person Noah, and then putting Job in the same group. So he's talking about him as a real person. Then in the New Testament, in James five ten through eleven, it says, "Brothers, as an example of patience in affliction, take the prophets who." spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Here again, he is spoken of as a real person and someone whose behavior we should imitate. Now, you see, because of this, it really is a tragedy to place it as merely a poetic story at the end of the Old Testament or something that was just written because people wanted to make people feel good. That robs it of all relevance. And actually, there's no biblical basis to do that. The way we're going to read it and discuss it today is as true history of a real person with some very significant things to teach us. So what actually happened in the book of Job? I'm just going to give you a very brief overview. Please do take time to read it. It is absolutely magnificently written. But here's how it starts out. The curtain is pulled aside and we see into the throne room of heaven. And there Satan has come to appear before God. And God says to him, have you seen my servant Job? He is an upright right man. He does all of these wonderful things. He worships me. And Satan says, well, why not? You have protected him on every side. He is incredibly wealthy. He has everything. Why shouldn't he worship you? And then God allows Satan to test Job's faith. First of all, he destroys all of his material goods. Then he kills his children. And finally, he takes Job's health. And he is sitting there on the ash heap in misery, scraping himself because his body's broken out in these horrible boils. And even his wife said, just curse God and die. Now then, after this has taken place, what Satan has done, the scene then shifts to Job and he's sitting there feeling miserable. His friends come and sit down with him. It says they're silent for three days and they should have stayed that way, but they didn't. And then they start talking to him. And what the majority of the book is the dialogue between the friends and Job. The friends consistently keep saying to Job, you must have done something wrong. You must have done terrible things. If you hadn't done such terrible things, God wouldn't be punishing you. And then Job responds by saying, no, I didn't. I've been a good man. Here are all the good things I've done. God just needs to answer me. And he again and again demands that God answer him, that God appear to him, that God tell him why he is suffering so much. And then the friends say, you're just being so arrogant and you should really quit that. And it's back and forth and back and forth. Finally, a fourth friend comes and says some more accurate things about how all of life is under God's control. And then God does indeed show up. 
and says to Job, where were you when I created the earth? And Job realizes that he no longer has anything to say. And then God says, I want you to pray for your friends. What they have said was not right. Job prays for his friends and he is restored. Now, we're going to go into it in much more detail, but I wanted to give you the whole overview. The thing that's important to understand, though, right from the start, is that God never answered Job's questions. But in the book itself, we do get the answers to many of the tough things in life, many of the things that we wonder about, and I'm going to talk about a number of them now, and then I will get back to talking a little bit more specifically about Job. One question that the book answers that you, I want to get um, outside of just the personal suffering a little bit first, one question that it answers that uh, many people are concerned about Christians and people who are not Christians, and that is, what about those who haven't heard about the God of the Bible. Didn't Jesus say that he was the only way to God? What if people haven't heard about him? Well, whenever I hear those questions now, my response is always the same. It's, how do you know they haven't heard? Usually it's some mythological group of people off somewhere, and the whole idea is, you know, well, what if they haven't heard? What if there's these people somewhere or whatever? But the the point that the book of Job makes to us is that we don't know all of God's plans. Job was not one of the chosen people. He was not an Israelite. He was not one through whom God would later reveal Jesus as Savior. He was someone apart. He wasn't he wasn't any part of that. And yet he offered true sacrifices. He worshiped the true God. He was called blameless by God. And throughout the Old Testament there's all these little pictures. There's Jonah who goes to preach to Nineveh and we'll we'll have some great stories about that when we get to that part of the Bible. There is Rahab who was actually a prostitute who was living in Canaan when the Israelites came through. There's Naaman who was a Syrian general who was a leper. There was the Ethiopian eunuch. And there's all of these people scattered throughout the Bible that we don't know how they became interested in God. We don't know what their backstory is, but we know that they came to see and to know the true God and the way to him. And so the point of that is, is I'm sure there's many, many more stories. And as C.S. Lewis says in one of his books where he talks about how when this one little girl questions Aslan about what he's done to this little boy that she doesn't approve of. He just looks at her and he says, but that's his story. And I think we need to remember that when we're wondering what God's doing with other people. That's their story. The second big question is, who is Satan and what power does he have? This is very important because we see in the book of Job and elsewhere, but Job emphasizes this, Satan is a created being. He is subordinate to God. He appears before God and he must ask God's permission to do what he does. Christianity is not a dualistic religion. There are not two warring powers where there's a good power and a bad power. No, God is in control. Satan is subordinate. At one time, he held a place of honor before God in heaven, but he rebelled and he was removed from his place. But yet for a time, he is allowed access to the earth. 
we don't understand it. We don't know why, but we're told that's simply how it is. And God does allow him to initiate. And we see this in the book of Job. Natural disasters, crimes, sickness, death, all sorts of horrible things. He is a restless wanderer. He, I would assume from the way Job puts it, he probably delights in doing these evil things, but he is under God's control. And someday he will be thrown into the lake of fire. Having said all that, and even reading Job, I know it raises probably more questions than it answers, but the two things I want you to come away with are that, well, actually maybe three. One, he's a created He's a created being. Two, he cannot do anything that God does not allow him to do, and his power will not last forever. The next question, and this is a very important one, and I think this is misunderstood in a lot of studies of the Old Testament, but as I've read it more and more, and I could go into lots, lots more on it, and I'll bring it up in when we do other passages, but is there a belief in Job and in the Old Testament in general in life after death? And I would say a resounding yes, simply by reading the book. The problem is so many people don't really read the book, and let me just give you a couple of passages, but I think these are very, really exciting ones. Uh, first of all, and Job discusses this a lot in the book. He's kind of always going back and forth, back and forth on it. But let me just give you two passages. In Job 14, 14, and 15, it says, If someone dies, will they live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. I think that's a very clear statement that after his death he plans on seeing God. Now one thing that's that's really neat, just a, a little tidbit here, um, in that when you look at the Hebrew, the word renewal is chalifa. And what it stands what it means is it's a change of garments. He's saying, when I will wait for my change of garment. And that, of course, uh, brings to mind, of course, the New Testament passages where Paul talks about putting off the garment of mortality and putting on immortality. And so you see both, again, in the Old and New Testaments, the same idea of changing a garment, but yet he will still be living. And Another passage, and this one, of course, you're all very familiar with, even if you didn't realize that it came from the book of Job, the lines in the Messiah where he says, I know my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin will be destroyed, has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. And again, the Hebrew is just incredible on this, where it says that after my skin or my flesh, it's 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 different different words that they use there, but he talks about that particular thing being destroyed, but yet he says, in my flesh I will see God. Now what's really interesting is that, that the same word is used in both. So he's saying that after my physical flesh, my basar is the word in Hebrew, has been destroyed. He says, yet in my flesh, basar, the same word. And it doesn't mean spiritual in one. It doesn't mean ghostly in one. It doesn't mean fleshly in another. In both, the word means flesh. 
flesh and blood, Job knew of the bodily resurrection. He says, in my flesh, I will see God. Now, I think that sometimes when people read the Old Testament, they downplay these things. Of course, if you're looking at it as a later book that was just a story, you can come up with all kinds of imaginative things. But Job knew that he would be resurrected and that he would see God. Now, because of that, he lived his life with that in view. God said that he was blameless. Well, what was it that made him blameless? It's something that's, that would be good for you to go back and look at in detail. But look at chapters 23, 29, and 31. And here's just a collection of some of the ways he's described. It says he treasured God's words. He helped the poor. He counseled others. He wept for those in need. He was sexually pure. He was just to the least of these. He did not trust in money. He did not rejoice over his enemy's misfortune. And he did not conceal his sin. So if that's the kind of person that God was, why didn't God just keep blessing him? Why did all of these things happen? We could very much ask along with Job's friends, well, well, didn't he just quit obeying God? Well, before we get into specifically what the book says, let's look at the importance of genre the type of literature that it is, the type of book that it is, before we go into more detail. Because if you just read it in bits and pieces, you won't see this. The genre that the book of Job is part of is what is called wisdom literature. And this was in Old Testament times in many parts of the world. We, we still have things like this, where you are told an entire story but you don't get to the point of the story, the truth of the story, until the very end. And that's how we have to read the book of Job. You really need to know the ending for all of it to make sense. And let me read that to you there in the end of the book, what God says to Job's friends. It says, After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. That is such an important statement because all along in the earlier part of the book, what they said again and again was a, a variation on this theme. And let me just read Job 22, 21 through 30. Now, again, there are many, many chapters where they go into detail on this, but this sums up a lot of their idea where they said, Submit to God and be at peace with him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. Accept instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove wickedness from your tent and assign your nuggets to the dust, your gold of Ophir to the rocks and the ravines, then the Almighty will be your gold, the choicest silver for you. Surely then you will find delight in the Almighty and will lift up your face to God. You will pray to him and he will hear you and you will fulfill your vows. What you decide on will be done and light will shine on your ways. Now this is this passage and many of the passages like it are very very tricky because they have some good stuff mixed in yes we're supposed to submit to God and be at peace with him yes we're to lay up his words in our heart but 
if we do that, it is not guaranteed that wealth and prosperity will come to us. And that statement, what you decide on, will be done. Oh my goodness, that is such a name it and claim it kind of thing. But remember, God's analysis of all of the words of the friends, he said at the end, what you said was not correct. You see, the friends believe that evil is punished and good is rewarded by prosperity on a continual basis in life. You do this, God blesses. You do that, God smacks you. It's basically a transactional relationship with God, but you are the one who decides what is going to happen. Now, God did not validate that belief then, and he doesn't today. Job disagreed with their conclusions with many examples. He said, well, look at all the wicked people that prosper, and look at all the good people who die young or terrible things happen. He said that that isn't what happens. And Job maintained again and again that he was right and they were wrong. But we know, of course, that so much more was going on than what Job or his friends could see. But for all of the book to make sense, we have to know the ending of it that Job's friends were wrong. And Job was was continually frustrated with them. He didn't know what to do. And finally, God had had enough. And he shows up and he says to Job, where were you when I created the earth? And he goes on in this magnificent passage, and he says, you know, when the morning stars sang for joy, and he quite literally puts Job in his place, and finally Job replies to God in this way, when he says, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you, and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job never got an answer to why he suffered. He never heard the conversations that were going on in heaven, but he saw God, and that was enough. Now, applications for us, these are just a few suggestions, but I think it will help us all to remember, like Ephesians also tells us, and you see again and again when you read the whole book, as I said the first week, it's progressive revelation. God just tells us more and more and more about similar themes as we go through the entire book. And then in Ephesians, it does get very specific where in Ephesians 6 it says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And the book of Ephesians is very specific. There's war going on. And somehow we're part of it. We don't know all the details. We do know, for better or for worse, that we are being watched. 
at least by God, probably by the angels. There's not nothing in scripture that humans who have gone before us are also watching us. So you don't have to worry that your grandmother is absolutely appalled at all the terrible things that you do or thrilled to death with all the stuff you're doing in the church. We don't see in scripture anywhere that that, that is happening. But the angels, God, and the demons obviously are watching what we do. And I had a little note to myself um, as I was preparing this saying so much for privacy laws. But I remember years ago when I was working with singles the, and the internet first came out and email first started and pornography on the web first became an issue. And I remember one Sunday telling my singles everything that you do is open to the eyes of heaven so it doesn't matter if you think something is private it isn't and we need to remember that we walk and we live before God and what we do matters we don't know how or in what ways totally but it matters we also know that God not we ourselves, determines what's best for us. And now this is where the book of Job gets really, really hard. But also what it teaches us is very true and very real. And one of the things that I always try to do as a teacher is to tell you the truth. I don't want to just make you feel good if it's a lie. Yes, of course, we all want to feel good. But the truth of the matter is that's not always going to happen. Because for us, just like for Job, there are no guarantees that it's going to get better in this life. Now, it did get better for Job. Everything was restored to him. He got a family back. He got double the wealth that he had. Things were restored for Joseph. He spent those years in prison, but then he was raised to a position of honor and great wealth, and he was reunited with his family. But it didn't get better for Jeremiah, and it didn't get better for Paul, and it didn't get better for the unnamed heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, and it didn't get better for Jesus on this earth. He died a horrible death on the cross. C.S. Lewis has a great quote that applies here, where he says, The real difficulty is to adapt one's steady beliefs about tribulation to this particular tribulation. For the particular, when it arrives, always seems so particularly intolerable. And that is such a true statement. We can have great theories, but then something hits us and it gets much harder. Well, then how should we respond to the challenges and the tragedies of life? We need to remember that God is so much bigger, more holy, and more in control than we often think about. Also, too, we do not see immediate rewards or punishments, either good or evil. It doesn't work that way. We do what God commands us to do, but we can't always expect an immediate reward or an immediate smack. It just, it just doesn't work that way. Our sins are paid for by Christ, and we can rest in that, that we are eternally secure in Him. Next, and this is, this is hard to, to comprehend, but our life is part of a story that we don't see. We don't know how God may be using us to teach a lesson in heaven. We don't know. 
We may wish that we were not being used in that way at all, but we don't have any choice. But there's always more going on that we don't see. And even heaven aside, you never know who is watching you, who is looking at you, who is seeing how you handle the challenges of life. Remember, like Job did, that our earthly life is only a prelude to eternity. And say like him that I know my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. And we know that then, and only then, will things be made right. Now one other I think very hopeful and encouraging thing is we may not get a personal vision from God. God may not show up and he probably won't in the same way that he did with Job, but we all have the opportunity to see Jesus in his word. Remember that in John 5.39 he said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. If you want to know Jesus' view on things, just read the Bible. And that's what you're doing. That's what we're doing in this series. And the mistakes so often that we make in life and how we evaluate what happens to us are because we don't read the word. One of my favorite verses is Matthew 22.29 where Jesus said, You are in error because you don't know the scriptures of the power of God. And I see that again and again and again and again. People, all of us, make mistakes because we don't know what we're supposed to do from God's viewpoint. But in contrast to that, remember in Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So with all of those things in mind, what should we do? Well, serve well. Here's just a few suggestions, no matter what your circumstances are. Now, don't wait until anything. Sometimes what I mean by that is people say, well, when I get my bills paid or when um, my kids go to school or when this happens or when I get married or when I get divorced, when I get uh, happy, when I get healthy, when I whatever, we often have all these untils. But don't use any of them as an excuse. Before you live for God, you read and study your Bible. I had a little uh, a little magnet that I gave to uh, my classes in the past, and I probably need to make this up again to give to my Sunday school class, where it said, no Bible, no breakfast. No Bible, no breakfast. And that's really a good idea. If you don't think you have time to do this reading through the Bible, no Bible, no breakfast. It'll take you maybe 10 minutes. 15 at the top. If you're a fast reader, five. You can get through your reading very, very quickly. But study the Bible. We need to give up known sin. We need to live a holy life. We need to share our faith and not give up when hard times come. Because you see, we do not want to confirm Satan's accusation that we only serve God because of the goodies that he gives us and when things are going well. We remember to be able to say, though he slay me, 
yet I will trust him. And remember the story too of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. They said to the king who wanted them to bow down, they said, we believe God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we won't bow down to you. And that's how we need to live when when stuff is really hard. So what do we do too, and this is important, when others are hurting, how can we help them? Well, first of all, don't be a miserable counselor like Job's friends were. That's what he called them. And don't judge when people are going through hard times. I see this so much, and I know I've been guilty of it too, but you look at somebody, something that they they are going through a hard time, and sometimes we can't help but say, well, I wonder what they did wrong. Well, obviously, they weren't following Proverbs enough, or they weren't doing this, or they weren't avoiding evil, or whatever, or they deserved it. No, 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 no. You never know. You don't know what God is doing. And also, too, don't assume just because someone has lots of money or lots of material blessings that God is blessing them. He may be testing them with that. So the point is, we just can't judge each other. Job said, you know, that a man should have kindness and help and understanding from his friends. And that's what we want to give people. Remember, when when people are going through hard times, these are some things that you can share with them, you can pray for them. Remind people that someday they will have complete freedom from all their troubles and they will be perfectly healed. That is guaranteed. But what's not guaranteed is the timing. We may be healed. We may get through our troubles, our problems might be solved, our sadness might be over in this life. Many times it won't be. But we are promised that healing and wholeness and joy is ours when we meet Jesus. Until then, pray for peace, pray for strength for your friend, for yourself, whoever is suffering. Pray for a real nearness of God. Stay in God's Word and develop an eternal perspective. In the recent movie about Luke and the Apostle Paul, there is a wonderful scene in it very where Luke is talking to a group of Christians who are afraid that they are going to be taken by the Roman authorities and that they will die in the arena. And a child asks him, he said, will that hurt? He looks at her and he says, yes, but only for a little while. You see, that's how really all of our, our trials should be looked at. They might hurt, and they might hurt a lot, but it's only for a little while in the eyes of eternity. And with that in mind, I was reading about the early Christian martyrs a while back, and one of their prayers, because they knew that they were going to face a very horrible and terrible death in the arena, but they also knew that this would be the last time that they would be able to publicly witness to their faith. And one of the prayers that has come down to us was, Lord Jesus Christ, don't let me cause you shame. And I think what a wonderful prayer when we are going through hard times. And this is what we really need to pray for our friends is that, and for ourselves when we're struggling, is that we not cause the Lord shame. That our struggles, that the hard times that we're going through, that they would really be a good testimony. That God would use it. That he would show himself strong in it. And that people would see him and honor him through it. Our story may not be written down like Job's 
was, but you can be sure that the Lord will remember how we have honored him even when the times were very, very difficult. Let me close with just one of my favorite verses where in Isaiah 51:11 it says, Those the Lord has, res- has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. I love that part of the verse where it says gladness and joy will overtake them because sometimes when I'm having a hard time I just I just don't know how I could ever be happy but even in that I can trust the Lord that he says gladness and joy will overtake me and it will be like that wonderful old hymn says it will be well with my soul that's all for today for additional notes and any materials that might be helpful and go along with this please check out www.bible805.com now until next time i'm yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim writer and teacher for jesus and i'd like to close with this benediction may you know the invitation of god to move from confusion to clarity from wandering to rest from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.